tonight on Arena. Karen Casey on her new show, The Women We Will Rise, and we visit Eva International, Limerick's biannual exhibition of art. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The Women We Will Rise is a theatrical song cycle asking questions about the women of Ireland, past, present and future. The show will preview on Wednesday the 27th of September before opening the following night at the Everyman Theatre in Cork as part of the Cork Folk Festival. The show will be presented by folk singer Karen Casey who has written songs about female figures who've played pivotal roles in Irish history including Come on the Man co-founder Kathleen Clark and the great contest Markovich and indeed Karen's own great great grandmother Agnes Ryan a mother of 12 children and a common the man member delighted that Karen is in our Cork studio this evening along with guitarist Sean O'Graham uh, and fiddle player Neve Dunn um, The Women We Will Rise is quite a provocative title was there a whole bundle of women that you wanted to talk about here Karen where did the idea come from? Yes exactly um, I mean I was just spoiled for sh- choice to be honest Um and they were such extraordinary women. Uh, but really what happened was my uh, first cousin, once removed, Jacko, invited me up to Dune in County Limerick to sing at the unveiling of a plaque for my great-grandfather. And I just got into this great conversation with him and his family about uh, Agnes Ryan of the hotel and everything that they had done. And I didn't know... Agnes being your great-grandmother. How much did you know about her before that? I I love the fact that it was a first cousin once removed that you were (laughs) chatting to. How much did you know of Agnes and what she had achieved in her lifetime before that particular day and the unveiling of the plaque? Very little. I didn't know Anton. And uh, I knew that she, at the end of her life, enjoyed a tipple and was a very good card player. But I had never heard anything about her. I only We only found out, actually, last year that she had got a service medal for uh, her services in Cominamon. Uh, we visited the military archives. So it's really been a, a, a journey of discovery and I've been trying to kind of imagine or I suppose drop myself mm. down imaginative imaginatively into her life. Yeah, and what was it in, in particular? Were there particular events or things that Agnes did during her lifetime that really spoke to you across the the, the years, across the century as it is, uh, Karen? Well, they were, they were extraordinary. There was a letter written to the family to say that there had been an order out on Packy Ryan of the hotel and that all the members of the family were to be shot on sight regardless Ooh. of age. Yeah, so they... They actually dressed the boys up as girls to get them out of the house. And so I've had kind of these snippets, I suppose, like every family, you have lore within it. And then I've just been trying to substantiate that. And that led me to other women. Uh, Madge Daly, another uh, great Limerick woman, she wrote a beautiful um, testimony for the Military History Bureau and that led me to Kathleen Clark. And to be honest, I knew very little about Kathleen mm. Clark as well. Another extraordinary woman. Um, and, uh, and and what, this is um, the wife of Thomas Clark. What yes. spoke to you most about her? Her perseverance. She was just so committed uh, to uh, enriching Ireland, to, uh, you know, furthering the cause for women and Ireland for... She ran the dependence fund after Tom had died. Mm. She knew all the details of the rising 
and uh, she became the first female mayor of uh, Dublin. She also had a parrot that uh, used to talk to the paintings when she was living, uh, um, looking at the you know fancy paintings in the mansion house, and the parrot would say, "You're a bowl pup." <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful detail to get about a parrot in the mansion house. But I suppose in some ways what you're talking about here is the, the you know, certainly previous to the decade of commemorations, it went some way, I think, to redressing the balance, mm. uh, uh, the redressing the imbalance, I suppose, if that's the correct term. But the fact that we hadn't heard these stories of the, the role of women in, particularly in the rising, up until the decade of commemorations, it really did open up that those stories out to us. Yeah, and there's been tremendous work, you know. Mm. Uh, Mary McAuliffe, uh, Sinead McCool, Liz Gillis, Leanne Lane, uh, Anne Toomey here in Cork. Just, I could go on the list of extraordinary uh, new work and books and the depth of... uh, just passion that they've written the women back into the history books. I mean, I've really relied on their And, and what you're performing in the show, it's it's a mix of new and old songs. Some of them are written specifically for the show and some of them from your recent album as well. But you also have a narration in there. What's the what's the role of the narration and what does it do for us as, as listeners? Because it's a, it's a theatrical song cycle, I think, is how you're describing the show. Yeah, I, I, I wrote... Um, sort of snippets from the, from their lives, uh, from different women's lives. And I suppose I tried to, to bring them to life. And I also tried to f- uh, foreground the details of, of a woman's life mm. and what it was like, you know, when her husband or her brother or her uncle was away on the run. And, and I suppose the sancti- sanctity of the home and when that was broken. Mm. So all of those, I suppose... Yeah. Nuances I've tried to bring forward. But so what you, you're going to perform for us? Um, your song, my name, it is Kathleen Clark. Is this a new song for the show, or does it, is this had this existed previously? Yes, we're doing it. We're doing it for the show. Um, it was also part of the um, yeah. treaty debates. Uh, but um, you're, you're using it. You're, you're kind of sort of repurposing it for this. Yes. And you'll give us a little bit of the narration into into the song before we hear the song itself. Uh, we're in the we're in May 1916, and Kathleen Clark is lying upon her bed, fully clothed, and she knows that the the soldiers are on her way to visit her, and she knows that that's not good news. So maybe you'd you'd lead us into the song with the narration that brings us there, Karen. Great. She rises. She has not slept all night. Her shoes are by the doorway beside Tom's bigger ones. She's too tired to knock the mud off them. Yesterday she had planted cabbages all day out the back, one after another digging with her trowel, taking the muck out and then planting the cabbages in and then filling them in with the earth. Slowly and methodically, As they had planned the rising together, she grew patience down on her knees. She wondered should she tell him about the new baby also growing patiently inside her. I have come up from the dark 
name it is Kathleen Clark, the title of that song from Karen Casey performing for us this evening in our Cork studio. Uh, studio rather. And uh, my thanks to Karen for that and also to Sean O'Grim and Neve Dunn who are accompanying her there. The new show is called The Women We Will Rise. It will preview on Wednesday the 27th of September, opens the following night the 28th at the Everyman Theatre in Cork as part of the Cork Folk Festival corkfolkfestival.com for full details or you can check out Karen's own website Karen Casey and that's K-A-R-A-N-Casey.com and our thanks to our colleague in Cork our sound engineer John Goff for his help with that item. The Supermodels is a new four-part series on Apple TV that spotlights the careers of Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington. The series travels back to the 1980s when four women from four different corners of the world united in New York. This enabled the four to supersede the brands they showcased, making the names Naomi, Cindy, Linda and Christy as prominent as the designers who styled them. As the fashion industry continues to redefine itself and women's roles within it, this is the story of how these four women came together to claim it paving the way for those to follow uh, Jen Gallen has been watching the supermodels for us uh, and she's with me in the studio this evening and it, it really struck me at, at the beginning of this series Jen precisely that the four names just Naomi Cindy Linda Christy and mm. I wouldn't have a huge interest in fashion but I knew exactly who we were talking about and I had their surnames were coming straight out they really did something in the 1980s they they turned the industry on its head in terms of the role of the model they definitely did and like they're you know household names like you said mm. you're not interested you wouldn't know even if you had a passing interest in fashion you are aware of who these women are it's like when a sports star, you know, when an athlete, when a football player transcends just the game of football, like you would, uh, people would know who George Best is or yeah. Eric Cantona. Yeah. They know who these women are. And that's the thing. Like, I mean, and that's the way I kind of explain the phenomenon of the supermodel to people if they're not interested in fashion. It's you would know them outside of fashion. And I mean, I think... You, you know, you could barely name a model before them. I mean, yeah. baby, maybe back in the 60s, you had Twiggy, you had Jean Shrimpton, you know, and that part of that British invasion, the Brit boom and Mary Quant, that style of things. And then in the 70s, maybe you had Lauren Hutton. She wouldn't be that famous, but a man as well. But these were the girls that just, it was kind of like a conflation of things. It was when the term supermodel was coined they, really almost, around these yeah. four, isn't it? And it was a conflation of things. It was a, a myriad of things in a way. We were like leaving behind the 80s, which was, you know, kind of hard-nosed, you know, that fashion of big hair, big shoulder pads and excess and moving into this different era of the 90s that maybe the magazines still were so important back then. Like Vogue was, a re- it was the Bible, it really mm. was. And, you know, people really, they stuck to what Vogue were saying and what, and what styles they were bringing out and the way things looked. And they had a lot of power and control. So when you were putting these models in those groups and putting them in the magazines, you know, they got to be known they got to be well known and then there was this transference where the girls usually would be split into two you could be like a fashion magazine model and you know a lot of people denigrated those kind of girls because it was very much like look the ex-cheerleader that couldn't make it as an actress she would be a model it wasn't seen it had no real cachet before they came along and the reason I think why it was because they were moved from being just in the magazines to actually on the runway as well so you so got to see them power. Yes, and you got to see them. You could see the way they moved. You see the height of them. And like, you know, these girls, they're not the girls.
girl next door. I hate that term because these are women that won the genetic lottery, put it that way. There is nobody else mm. that looks like Naomi Campbell. There's nobody else that looks like Cindy Crawford, the all-American girl, as they love to call her. But they were outsiders as in because they were such individualistic looks and they were very versatile as well and, and it worked The other thing that is very striking in the early part of this in the, I saw the first episode of the series today they talk about this idea the model was essentially the unknowable woman or mm, the girl silent. as the term because she was silent <laughs> Yeah, you saw her you never heard her speak she never uttered a word these women changed that. They definitely did. And like, that's the thing. It's pr- projection of the fantasy upon, you know, fashion is a fantasy. It, you're never going to be able to afford a Versace dress, the normal girl who goes to, works in the office. But the thing about these girls is they really worked it in a way where it kind of was like sports sponsorship, the endorsements. Like if you were a girl that couldn't afford, you know, the latest whatever Chanel boots, you could afford a Maybelline lipstick or a Revlon lipstick or, mm. you know, you could afford to drink a can of Pepsi, which since Andy Crawford, you know, advertised. So they really were very shrewd in how they moved, not just into the fashion world, but into those endorsements as well. And that's where the big money was, because it's not just about, you know, the clothes and the photography, they're the art. And that's what they will be remembered for. But at the same time, the real money is, you know, the commodity is king. And that's where Mm. they were in the homes and minds of every young girl and boy across the world. I was struck by how accidental <laughs> their route to modeldom or modelhood was they were all kind of discovered by accident while doing yes. um, uh, you know other things these, these are my favourite stories and that's what I love about modelling per se for young girls especially for young working class girls it was a great route to instant you know money um, you would be approached in like Naomi Campbell was in Covent Garden with her friends and she was 13, 14 and, and then it was like here's my card you're beautiful you're going Let, to be well, somebody let's, let's listen she describes that actually Naomi mm-hmm. Campbell describes that moment when she was literally spotted spotted yeah. on the street she had a lot of background in dance and theatre mm. it has to be said at this time so that was part of part of her appeal but here's how she was discovered I was in a culture club video I lived for Boy George I lived for culture club I thought Boy George was just like he didn't care what people thought of him and how he dressed and if he put on makeup and if he was a boy in makeup I loved it in 1984, I didn't want to go home directly, so a bunch of my school friends and I stopped in this great kind of artsy area we have in London called Covent Garden. There was the square, music in the streets. There was always artsy things happening. American lady said to me, did I model? I was a bit taken back because I was some of my school friends like had beautiful long silky golden hair and there was me just like you know a little awkward in the sense of I always wanted to shrink myself a little bit because I felt a little lanky and so I took the lady's card and I didn't call her for weeks and then I called her her name was Beth Bolt she said me are on go-sees I had three pictures in my book. Got to start somewhere. 
That's Naomi Campbell speaking in the uh, four-part documentary series The Supermodels on Apple TV Plus. Jen Gannon has been watching it for us. What's very striking about the Naomi Campbell story is she was sent to a private school. Her mother really wanted her mm. to, to do well. She was sent to a private school and she talks about the kind of abuse she got simply for being black Daily. at the age of five, six, yeah. seven in, in this private school. Really difficult time that she had there. Um, but the mother... As is the case with more or less all four of the supermodels we get, the parents were not pro the idea of modelling at all. No, which you can completely understand. I think for anybody that's watching this documentary, they should probably watch. There's an, a really good other documentary called Scouting for Girls, which is about the other side of the fashion industry because you are talking about, like I said, they're 13, 14, 15 year old girls. Yeah. Kate Moss was discovered at JFK when she was 13 years old and she was put on the front of the Face magazine when she was 14. Christy Turlington in this documentary says, you know, I was a 15 year old girl wearing a wedding dress like modelling a wedding dress should I be doing that you know and but it's, it's, it's even more disturbing with Christine uh, uh, with uh, uh, Christy, uh, Christy, Christy Christy Turlington, Turlington yeah, yeah. Uh, where she tells the story about she was uh, she was her hair draped on she was bare underneath and her arms were covering her breasts mm. but slowly she's asked to lower her arms until she's naked yeah. basically. And, and there was nobody it felt like there was nobody there to, to safeguard these young girls and there's a, another story where Linda Evangelista was sent to Japan when when she was 17 years old alone yeah, without she, chaperones without people to look after them without in a notorious industry where a lot of men preyed on these young girls and their vulnerabilities and the fact that you know other women weren't around mm. and, and they were essentially just these young girls alone I, I, left I to the wolves I, I find it extraordinary that Linda Evangelista's parents let her go to Japan yes. and she says that um, yeah. they, they, they followed her everywhere when she was doing shoots but then they let her go to Japan and of course she was there 10 minutes when the kind of the subject of nude pictures came up and she, she just she, she, left. she bolted and but she left and then you know returned to, took a break and then returned to modelling and that was you know something that was a, a choice then that she had to make money is a big part of it and yes. you know the famous line I don't go out of bed for less than ten thousand dollars was it which I loved, <laughs> which was you yeah. know Linda Evangelista that followed her around forever and you know she talks about like almost apologetically uh, ashamed of kind of saying that which I think mm. is ridiculous because I don't think you would find a young man that would have any qualms about saying that's my price and this is what you're going to spend on me because you're going to get the best and this is what I do and I think it's because a lot of men yeah. don't outside of the fashion world maybe don't understand fashion or are very reductive about but what they do. How did these women take power? What was it that changed because it did become as much about them as it was about the brand or the designer or the photographer? And I, I mean, I think for somebody like Naomi Campbell, I think she's very important because you know, she went in there with demands, which she had to do because she, nine times out of ten, was the only black girl on a shoot. She was the only black girl hired and sometimes they didn't hire her and the other girls w- made it known that they would only be used if Naomi was going to be there And too. then the George Michael video was a, big, was a big part of it all when they all were the four of them together that is a moment iconic is thrown around a lot these days but that was iconic do we finally do we get you know do we get any of the 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 personal lives really do we get you two and Naomi Campbell etc we don't and I think that's the problem with this is it's it's a documentary about the supermodels and it's their story but also at the same time it being a documentary about the supermodels it's heavily airbrushed so you're not going to get the gossip that you want and you're not going to get the kind of bitter side which it should probably go into further and it it does skim over a lot of those stories so I do think you know arm yourself with that accompanying documentary scouting for girls and see the other side when you're watching this but I will say I would watch 10 hours of Naomi Campbell just talking anyway full stop that's her own documentary (laughs) available on Apple TV plus all four episodes from tomorrow that's the supermodels Jen Gannon speaking Speaking to us about that. 
The city of Limerick is awash with visual arts installations, murals and exhibitions at the moment. That's because it is once again time for the EVA International uh, 2023 version of it. The Treaty City's citywide exhibition of art. From a handball alley to a primary school, from a cathedral to a vegetarian cafe, you can find arresting artworks all over the place. Delighted to be joined by Frank Wasser, who has been on a visual jaunt to Limerick and joins me this evening. Um, EVA, by an alley, a biannual event that now takes place all over the city of Limerick. It's been around for quite a while though, uh, Frank. It has indeed, John. The first EVA took place in 1977 um, and the EVA would have originally stood for Exhibition of Visual Arts. Um, And this is the 40th edition. It has changed quite a lot in, in that space of time. Initially, it was an annual exhibition. It was an open call, so artists from all across the country could apply um, there were curated exhibitions then that, that were part of Viva in the 19, in, from 1994 forward. But it transformed into the kind of Biennale format around 2012. Um, and that had to do with, you know, the proliferation of Biennales across the world. It has always, though, been a platform for not just very renowned international artists, but for new emerging Irish artists, European artists to mm. show their work. So it's an incredibly you know, important platform in that regard. But um, uh, and yeah, the, curator, the main change... The curator this year is Matt Packer, current so director. The, that's right, yeah. Matt Packer is the director and Matt, I think, started in, in 2018. And um, there's the director and there's also a guest curator uh, as well. Um, and the guest programme is curated this year by Sebastian Chichowski who's a, a Polish curator, writer, art critic. Um, he's penned lots of different books as well. Um, and the approach that he has taken to this year's Biennale um, comes, is attached to the idea of citizenship, which is the whole idea, the whole theme of the Biennale this year. So the idea was to think about citizenship, not just in, in terms of um the individual or the state, but the citizen in relation to the state. And this is in the context of anti-immigration protests mm. in this country and further afield, um, the post-Brexit era. And then more specifically, Sebastian's um, uh, curated programme takes up the idea of gleaning, um, the gleaning society. Um, and it uses the idea of gleaning as a sort of an organising principle, a curatorial methodology. Well, maybe you'd, um, gleaning is an agricultural term. Maybe you'd, you'd explain what that term means and then we'll, we'll tweet a couple of images that show us how uh, Sebastian has transferred that idea, I suppose, into the visual, war, our visual arts world. Yeah, so so gleaning is a term that um, traditionally refers to the act of uh, collecting surplus crops. Um, so if you can imagine a, a crop of potatoes being collected, everything that falls off the sides you are, are, will be collected by the workers to eat. Um, and I suppose uh, curatorially what, what Sebastian and the team have done is they've taken this metaphorically, but also literally as well by looking at the context of, of, of the legacy of those 40 editions of EVA International, um, but also uh, connecting to different communities within the city. This is not a Biennale that's about specta- a spectacle, let's mm. say. This is a Biennale that's about making connections with communities global. Uh, it's, a, it's a Biennale which, which feels a little bit influenced by uh, Documenta 15, the major exhibition that takes place in Castle every five years. Last year's Documenta was very much about the idea of sort of harvesting 
Let's tweet an image by Natsuko Uchino. And this is an image. In fact, there are several pieces at play here. But Natsuko Uchino dwellings from 2023 is is what we're calling this piece. But there are several pieces within this space. You can look at this this, uh, image now on at RTE Arena. Several uh, items within the space that we're looking at, Frank. Yeah, so these are uh, works that can be understood as sculptural. They're works that have at their core, um, you know, uh, traditional processes. I think um, a lot of the the artists um, who are included in the program this year, including this, have worked with other makers. It's not just we're not getting a biennale of individual artists working in their studios on their own. They're often working with either traditional ideas in this case, thinking about ideas of, of decolonizing, thinking about ideas of um, how their work might relate to a broader kind of cultural sphere as well. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a real mix. It's a, it's a biennale that takes a, quite a lot of time to get around and, you know, one that takes place across 17 venues. As you mentioned at the start, everything from, you know, uh, Ormston House, which is sort of the entri- entrance to the exhibition, uh, to Limerick City Gallery, uh, through to a primary school, um, Doreen O'Malley, the Irish artist, has collaborated with um, uh, uh Primary School to um, create a, a permanent uh, micro forest within the grounds of the schools. So this is something that's kind of forward looking. Mm as well as looking, you know, uh, to, to what has passed in respect to gleaning. And the other thing um, uh, that, that always struck me about Eva when I was in Limerick at the time was how you were walking down the street literally, and there was art everywhere. It was not just unusual venues. Let's tweet an image by uh, Clodagh Emo. Reflections on a City Lot is the title of this piece. Um, and again, this <laughs> you be, if you're walking around, I'm not sure exactly what street it is in Limerick, but if you're walking th- around the city, you're going to see this image. Maybe describe it to us if you would, Frank. Yeah, sure. sure. This, this, is on, this is the fireplace site on Nicholas Street uh, in Limerick. And there's a number of works Located on that street, um, so do do keep an, an eye out. But uh, Clodagh Emo is, a, is an Irish artist who has, uh, you know, presented work at the Serpentine Gallery in London, the Model in Sligo, and Emma. Um, and you know, Clodagh is one of the uh, artists in the Biennale who has looked locally in terms of ecological ideas. Um, so the, what you're looking at is a print um, uh, that shows a common ragwort. Uh, that was gleaned from that particular site earlier in the year. And then through a, a process of, of various different sort of printmaking processes um, that transfer um, p- uh, plant dyes onto paper, uh, that image ha- has been produced. And the, the, the title um, of, of the work, uh, Clay Lot, is inspired by um, Aldo Leopold, who... Mm. Um, once observed the weeds and the other kind of um, infrastructures, uh, ecological infrastructures within the city. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of kind of things that you just come upon by by chance. It's yeah. kind of a, yeah. yeah there's another un- unusual location. This, well, it's been used as a gallery, obviously, St. Mary's Cathedral. And this is the work of Cian Benson Bills. Um, Calioch Boy 1 and Calioch Boy 2. <laughs> Great yeah. uh, sculptures, these. Uh, but what are they? What What are they made of? They, it It looks as if they're kind of all sorts of gathered materials that that create these two images at RTE Arena. If you want to see the two images that we're talking yeah, about, yeah, I, 
I mean, these are these are quite these are works that sort of linger long past. I mean, you enter St. Mary's Cathedral, um, you know, and, and among um, everything that you expect to see there, the religious iconography, um, you know, places to, to pray. There are these two figures um, which I would describe as sort of Kafkaesque sculptural works in the sense that they, they kind of come close to the form of a, of a person or a figure or a body, but maybe something kind of um, morphing through an animal yeah. form, through the form of an insect. And basically, Keane, Keane Benson's uh, Bailey's work, um, they're a Sligo-based artist, and they've been engaged with um, exploring queer experience in relation to religious iconography. Um and so what we're looking at are, are sculptures that are made from an array of, of materials connected to gleaning, harvesting, materials that are, might be associated yeah. with, you know, traditional processes right the way through to, um, you know, uh, very crafted materials. But it's quite a kind of, it's something that contrasts quite a lot with the sort of, you know, stone carvings of, of the cathedral itself, this kind of temporal, strange, queer form. Um, right in there. It would be hard to imagine a work like this existing in any other church in the world, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a special one. I, I want to tweet another image now, um, which is called The Grove, and this is on Cecil Street, and Naveen G. Dossos, if I'm saying the name correctly, yeah. um, this is a wonderfully colourful piece at RTE Arena. I thought that's a very fine um, <laughs> type of wallpaper that's on these walls. What exactly am I looking at? I mean, what you're looking at is 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 something that kind of really encapsulates some of these key ideas that Matt and 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 Sebastian, the team, have really kind of harvested over the last two years. It's a it's a mural, um, but it's you know it's, a, it's an immersive mural, and not in the sense of of spectacle. It's in a vegetarian uh, uh, cafe, so you might just be going to this cafe and having you know uh, your lunch or your breakfast breakfast and you might just notice this artwork around but essentially the kind of uh, the work is comprised of uh, illustrations mm. from wild cherries through to um symbols of various active activist organizations like extinction rebellion the soil association just stop oil um and at the press conference, actually, one of the things Naveen said is that she didn't want the work to be something that was sort of didactic, but rather something that you gently absorb. So the idea is that you're looking at this work and it reminds you that within yeah. the city, there are all of these things that can be gleaned and harvested. Yeah. All of the symbols that you see in that image there, the wild cherries, um, um, the, are the, all the, of the hazelnuts, these are all found. things. Yeah, you can find them. In you, Limerick, very yeah. close to the gallery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Finally, yeah. then, yeah. Um, th there's a, a kind of a cafe aspect to that. Now, what about the pubs? There were there any pubs that you went to where you saw exhibition or say exhibits? Well, there were a few, but one in particular. Um, I suppose if you, if you if you get around the seventeen venues, uh, make sure to get into the commercial bar, and then you'll you'll see the work of John Carson. Now, John Carson has two works at the Biennale: one at Ormston House, uh, Friend Network, but the the work in question. Uh, is a bottle of stout in every pub in Bunkrana. And John Carson was an artist who emerged from his studies uh, very much soon after the period of conceptual art. Um, and he had an idea for an artwork, which was to um, have a bottle of stout in every pub in Bunkrana. Um, and he was going to turn this artwork into a poster and a small piece of documentation showing him going through the process of doing that. So in the pub, in the snug area of the pub, look out for this poster, but more 
importantly, there's a small document beside the poster and there you will find John Carson's correspondence with the Guinness Group Sales uh, in 1977, where he asked them to sponsor the work. And Guinness politely replied, and I have it in front of me here, by saying, we're sorry about the delay in replying to your letter, but unfortunately we feel to pursue your suggestion would not be consistent with our company policy, which is the promotion of the consumption of alcohol on a moderate basis. Um, I'm sure you would be appreciate that your a bottle of Guinness in every pub in Bunkrana would not be consistent with this policy. So it's a hilarious yeah. work. <laughs> What's amazing about it is he manages to keep the correspondence going for multiple letters, and ultimately, <laughs> what the work becomes is a very Flannel Breen esque, uh, you know, look at scrutinising of the bureaucracy and administration and framing of. You know, drinking Super. culture in relation to identity. It's an it's an amazing, okay. very subtle, albeit amazing work. Yeah. yeah, well, that's great, Frank. Thanks for that um, whistle stop tour around some of the uh, exhibits currently on at Eva in Limerick. Frank Wasser there, and Eva International runs at various venues, as you've heard from Frank there across the city of Limerick through until October 29th. Yes, she has sold over 80 million records worldwide, seven number one singles, eight number one albums, and is the only female artist to have a number one album over five consecutive decades. Yes, I am talking about Kylie Minogue. Her 2019 Glastonbury set broke viewing records, her Las Vegas residency sold out in seconds, and her latest release, Padam Padam, was her first UK number one in over a decade and was the big hit, one of the big hits of the summer. She's about to release her 16th studio album called Tension. I'm joined in studio this evening by Kellyanne Byrne to look back at the remarkable career I've got to say diminutive pop star she is yeah. a huge pop star <laughs> she may be diminutive in stature but she is a huge pop star she is um, indeed it, that's how it all started yeah locomotion yeah locomotion that's a demo, that's a demo. and she um, so we all knew her from Neighbours I don't know if you remember her yeah, Neighbours yeah. as Charlene Mitchell she was a mechanic feisty mechanic her? how could you forget her and everybody was in love with her and then she recorded that demo and um, I think that was the fastest selling single of the decade in Australia. Went to number two, I believe, in the UK. And obviously interest in her grew as a, as a singer. And then she went to record with Stock Aiken and Waterman. Yeah, and number one in Ireland, it has to be said, Locomotion yeah. as well. Well, we so, love her here. Yeah, Stock Aiken and Waterman. Was there something very... What was the formula there? Because when she got that, it really did... That rocketed her into international stardom, essentially. Her first four albums were um, obviously produced by Stock Aiken and Waterman. Mm. And um, yeah, I mean, look, they were known as the Hip Factory. They'd worked with Rick Astley, Bananarama, Mel and Kim, various other artists. And I mean, her two first albums were majorly successful, but she did feel by the second release that she wanted to break away from them slightly because I think she kind of felt that she was becoming a little bit of a puppet mm. um, and, uh, yeah, wanted more creative control of her records. Mind you, this was one of the hits from that period. Yeah. And I suppose it's the big one that really, this did launch her into international stardom, one of her big hits. I have to 
say uh, the, the studio yourself and myself Kelly the entire production it's area dancing. everybody's sway it's impossible to sit still as you listen to as you I, listen sh- to I should be so lucky yeah I mean and, and yeah, I understand that maybe she wanted a bit more creative mm. control, but what she was doing, I mean, oh that's, my God. that's just high energy pop music and great fun. Absolutely, yeah. Like, it was her first number one record. Um, I believe uh, uh, Kylie, the, the album itself, was one of the f- the best-selling albums of the decade by a female artist. Mm. There's, I went back and listened to that for the first time in years. When I was a kid, I loved her. There are so many great tracks on it, um, so many amazing pop songs, but it was her herself, and I remember her in that video, she was like the girl next door, you know, yeah. completely bubbly and approachable. And I think everybody just fell in love with her. If you didn't know her outside of Neighbours. Yeah, but who really, well, at least, I don't know if you fell in love with her, but certainly they were dating each other, um, uh, the pop star Mick Hutchins from In Excess. Yeah. It, it's, was this in and around the time of the break from um, from uh, Stock, well, Aiken and Waterman and the album Rhythm of Love in 1989? Yeah. What changed when she, with, with Hutchins' involvement in her personal life and in her music? I think he was a big influence on her uh, creatively and musically. And Positive? Oh, absolutely. 100%. If you've ever seen Mystify, the documentary that came out about him about mm. three years ago, she gave footage of their their love affair. Um, she's really private and she handed over this footage to the director. And when you watch it, she was so in love with him and him too. Yeah. But I believe he was a big influence. And Better the Devil You Know was the point where she kind of went, I want to do a little bit of my own thing. She was growing up. It was a very um, sexy, more mature image. I remember when that video came out for Beth Bethesda. And just, just describe what was different about the video from maybe what we had seen of her previous to that. <laughs> I was going to say all pants. <laughs> but no, she was she was so hot in that video. I mean, I remember seeing it and thinking, oh my God, Kylie, she's so sexy. And uh, yeah, that was, it was one of the moments, like many of the ones after Can't Get You Out of My Head spinning around where people were like, whoa, this yeah. is an incredible song. In bed with the devil, you know. Yeah. Just saying, as we were listening to that, Kelly Ann Byrne, and better the devil you know there from from uh, Kylie and that from her nineteen eighty from nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, you can hear. We were talking about the change when she moved away from Stockaken and Waterman. You, you can literally the voice comes down yeah. a, a couple of notches. It comes down a couple of notes yeah. in pitch. It's interesting you said that. It's slightly deeper. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a more mature image and I do believe a lot of that was, was related to her dating Michael Hutchins. I'm not saying he was responsible mm, for that. Mm. Kylie is Kylie. But, you know, she has said that herself. He was a massive influence on her. And she joined the uh, the London label Deconstruction in 1993. What, yeah. did, what, what new aspect did that bring to her music as it developed through the 90s? That was her step away from Stock Aiken and Waterman and I guess it turned towards a, a more alternative indie Kylie. Um, you know, she was living in London. She was going to see a lot of bands. She was out clubbing. She said this herself. Uh, she had Kylie Minogue and Impossible Princess under that label. Um, tracks like Confide in Me, Breathe, mm. Put Yourself in My Place. 
they didn't sell as well as the previous records. I think people weren't ready for that side of her. But that said, I do think, I do think, like, Confide in Me is one of her best tracks ever. It really is. Yeah, but there's one thing that I do want to go to, which is a little bit later on. Yeah. Whoever would have thought Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue would do a duet together? Yes, yeah. 1996, Where the Wild Roses Grow. And I think he had a bit of an obsession with her. And he asked Michael Hutchins, who she was with at the mm. time, um, to put them in touch. And she was like, OK. And uh, yeah, they recorded this record together, which was a murder ballad. <laughs> and nobody would have thought the Evervescent Kylie yeah. would produce this, this track, but it worked and critics loved it. And yeah, it's a yeah, great that's song. Let's have a listen. On the second day, I brought her a flower. She's more beautiful than any woman I've seen. I said, Do you know where the wild roses grow? So sweet and scarlet and free. On the second day, he came with a single. There you go. That's Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue. And mm-hmm. as I say, Kelly Amber, that certainly that was that was an unusual duet to say the very yeah. least. Were, were there other unusual partnerships like that across her career? Do you think? Um, I, she did a, a, a thing with the Manic Street Preachers, and then there was a collaboration with um, Robbie Williams on Kids, but that mm. was massively successful. But that would have been the one I think that people really didn't expect from her. 2019 and and the pyramid stage at, at Glastonbury oh. it broke all viewership, all kinds yeah. of records, didn't it? Yeah, 3.2 million viewers, the greatest um, amount of viewers to the BBC, uh, obviously watching from their homes to date. And I think it was 175,000 in the audience. Mm. And when you watch that back, it's epic because for Kylie, it was a big moment because her concert had been cancelled at the festival in 2005 due to her breast cancer yeah. diagnosis. So it, it was a major moment for her and for the audience with her. Uh, it's really emotional when you watch it back. Yeah, no, I remember I remember yeah. at the time and every, everybody just was so delighted to see her back up on stage and, and doing her thing. Yeah. And I want to finish up with something. It's a little bit later than that, I think, isn't it? Yeah, um, from our eighth album, in fact, it, 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 it's zero one, so ahead of, the, mm-hmm. ahead of the, the cancer and all of that. Mm-hmm. But it, for me, it's kind of the, it's the one that defines Kylie. Can't get you out of my oh, head. Oh, it's epic. Epic. Why is this so Kylie Minogue? I mean, this track went to number one in 40 different countries. So five million uh, copies. I remember when this came out and again, it was one of those, oh my God, here she comes again with the spinning around and done it. But this track for me is, is the pivotal. Can't Get You Out of My Head from uh, Kylie Minogue eighth album Fever number one in 40 countries and sold 5 million records and that as we were saying Kelly Anborn ahead of the, the breast cancer yeah. and all of that and, and the, then that comeback on, on Glastonbury in 2019 so here she is mid 50s and new album on the way big summer hit uh, yeah. Padam Padam why is she the evergreen star that she is? Oh, I've thought about this. I've loved her since I was a kid. I just think Kylie, she's so magical. She's a mix to me of Marilyn Monroe and Dolly Parton. She exudes joy, um, positivity, vulnerability. But also she is one of the hardest working women in show business. She deserves everything that has come to her and more. And I'm just 
to see her at 55 be at the top of her game when women are written off at that age, I just feel so unbelievably happy for her. She deserves everything that comes her way. I think she's a total star. Yeah, I think a lot of people will agree with you on that. That's Kellyanne Byrne talking to us about the remarkable career of Australian singer Kylie Minogue and Kylie's new album, Tension, will be released on September the 22nd. But that is our lot for this Tuesday evening here on Arena. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Research this evening was by Paula Shields and Leah Murphy. Jimmy Doyle was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Uh, tomorrow night we will be talking to Orla Foyle about her new book and we'll also have Limerick rapper, we'll be back in Limerick tomorrow night for Strange Boy. He's a thousand year old poet in the body of a young Limerick man. That's what he says. That's tomorrow night here on Arena. Talk to you then. Fick O'Brien will be with you after the news.